I'm Kay Firth-Butterfield at the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Hello, Kay. It's so nice to see you. Likewise, and only a couple of days since we were last together. I'm really looking forward to meeting that we have today with the two powerhouse ladies from NIST to talk about their work, which is just such an important addition to both the global and the domestic thinking around AI and responsible AI. Yeah, yeah. How appropriate that we're going from a debrief on AI machine learning discussions at Davos to the heart of some of the important work happening here in the U.S. and on the global space that's being launched by NIST, this small agency within the Department of Commerce that people hadn't heard about a few years ago. And in the meantime, they've been working diligently at the mandate of Congress to create this framework that has global implications. It's so interesting to think that this small staff is tasked with the high lofty ambition of understanding how to both translate values into our AI systems, how to make sure that in defining that process, you're taking into mm -hmm. account all the different cultures and types of institutions and organizations that are going to want to make use of this framework and all the different people who will need to understand the best practices that they are amplifying in this framework. And so I'm really excited for this conversation to understand the thought and real intensive work that went into making sure that they heard from hundreds, probably thousands of stakeholders over the past 18 months and, and how that landed in the framework that was released on January 26. Absolutely. One can only imagine that they have worked night and day and the rest of us should simply be in awe and grateful to them for doing so. Cheers to that. So let's dive in. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of In AI We Trust. We are very excited this week to have a special conversation with Elham Tabasi and Riva Schwartz from the U.S. Department of Commerce's National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST. As you all may know and recall, we had the privilege of speaking with Elham on our podcast a little over a year ago, and today we are thrilled to have her back to talk about the significant development, the rollout of NIST AI RMF 1.0. The NIST AI RMF has received praise from all corners based on its thoughtful and collaborative approach to innovative frameworks. Feedback has come from technology companies, business organizations, civil society, academics alike. We are thrilled to be able to talk with you a little bit about what the AI RMF is today, what your goals were, where the idea came from, and also talk about the untold story, the really thoughtful outside process you all undertook, the additional time, effort, and energy you spent to make sure that this was done in the way that AI frameworks should be implemented, and that is collaboratively, multi-stakeholder, with transparency, and deep attention and thought into those not here enough too often. And so I'm really looking forward to having our listeners hear more about all that went into making this really important development in our AI responsible governance world. To start, Elham is Chief of Staff in the Information Technology Laboratory at NIST. 
It's one of the six research laboratories within NIST and that supports NIST's mission to promote US innovation and industrial competitiveness by advancing measurement in science, standards, and technology in ways that enhance economic security and improve our quality of life. Elham is not new to this work. She has been working on various research projects in computer vision research and other applications with biometrics evaluations and standards since 1999. She is the renowned principal architect of the NIST fingerprint image quality, now an international standard for measuring fingerprint image quality, which has been deployed in many large scale biometric applications worldwide. And appropriately, she has received numerous medals and recognitions for her achievements and hard work and really important work in this space, including the Department of Commerce Gold Medal in 2003, another 2007, 2010, the ANSI 2012 Next Generation Award, and many more, and I have a feeling many, many more to come. Likewise, Riva is a powerhouse in the AI space with an interesting background as a research scientist currently at ITL. She serves as principal investigator on bias in AI for NIST's trustworthy and responsible AI program. Her background has enabled her to really dig deep on organizational practices, the role of expertise and expert judgment in socio-technical systems where her research attention goes today but her background is in linguistics and experimental phonetics. Elham and Riva, thank you so much for joining our show. We're very excited to have the opportunity to talk with you both about the significant work and understanding the development that you released into the world on January 26th with the AI RMF, as well as understanding what is next for you all. So let's jump in. The NIST AI RMF is a highly anticipated framework that represents the culmination of 18 months of inclusive, transparent, participatory processes. For those who may not know what all that went into the AI RMF, can you give us a high level background to understand what it is, why did you create it, and what are the goals for this framework? Thank you, Miriam, for having me again and having us to be here to talk about the AI RMF, and as you said, what an extraordinary journey it was to work with the whole community on this important document and this important task. Uh, what is AI RMF? Directed by a congressional mandate, AI RMF is a voluntary framework for managing risks of AI systems in a flexible, structured, and measurable way. Flexible to allow innovations and for organizations and different sites to be able to use it and measurable because if you cannot measure it, you cannot improve it. AI RMF adopts a rights-preserving approach to AI and it outlines a process to address traditional measures of accuracy, robustness, and reliability, but also importantly acknowledges that the socio-technical characteristics of systems, characteristics such as privacy, interpretability, safety, and bias, which are tied to human and social behavior are equally important when evaluating the overall risk of AI systems. These characteristics involve human judgments and cannot be reduced to a single number, threshold, or metric. In terms of intended goal, AI RMF aims to operationalize values in our technologies. Starting with the values of our society, but also for each organization that are using AI RMF, the values of that organizations that may design, develop, deploy, or use of AI systems. 
On a very broad view, it aims to cultivate a culture of proactively understanding and preventing negative risks and develop more trustworthy AI systems. Uh, it tries to go beyond focusing on whether technology works, but also focus on how it works, where and how and by whom is the technology used, who is left out, why, who is being adversely impacted, and why does that impact happen, and how we can cultivate trust in these technologies and managing uh, their risks so AI can be useful in um, realizing its potential in a very equitable way, helping all members of the society. Thank you very much for that. And this is such important work that I want to echo what Miriam said about, you know, thank you for, for doing the work. And just to dig into this in a little bit more detail, one of the defining characteristics of this framework is that open and collaborative process that NIST undertook in the development. And I wondered whether you could walk us through that outreach strategy and why that process was so important in the development of this work. Yes, thank you. And, and uh, echoing Oham's uh, thanks to you, Miriam, and to UK for having us. Uh, we're excited to be here to talk about the AI risk management framework and specifically the kind of uh, behind the scenes, open, uh, transparent, collaborative approach that we took. Now that, that said, um, open collaboration, transparent approaches, multi-stakeholder approaches is a NIST core value. It is how NIST does business regularly. We are a small agency. Um, we don't think we have all the answers. We know we, we need to hear from uh, the broad set of stakeholders from uh, private industry, from academia, government agencies, and of course, and, and civil society, and hopefully, uh, you know, community groups as well. Um, so we regularly engage, not just here, but all, all the time in the public comment process for everything, almost everything we do here at NIST. Um, and the AIRMF was obviously no different. We had four public comment periods, the one for the RFI, uh, the concept paper, and two draft versions. We had three open workshops. We had Slack channels. We have an email address. We, we had a lot of small group meetings, sometimes with the uh, same groups uh, over and over again. In the end, of course, we, we heard from 240 organizations, some individuals, but mostly organizations, all of this is tracked online and available publicly. So this gets to the open and transparent piece. And anybody can see who we heard from, see who uh, sent us comments, see how our document changed over time and review the workshop events. But suffice to say, if you sent us comments, we tracked it and we discussed it as a group. Uh, sometimes we spent hours talking about specific sections of that document in, in light of the comments we received. Uh, really, that is a testament to Elham's leadership and focus on making this as inclusive as possible that, you know, if the comments were relevant in a specific section, we we spent time with it. So that's, that's what we did, but I want to take a little bit of time to talk about why it was so important. You know, we knew from the outset that the community we needed to hear from when we're talking about risks of AI and impacts of AI is going to be pretty vast. And we really strive to hear from as broad a set of actors as we possibly could have. You know, of course, I'm sure we could have heard from 
more in different types of organizations. But I mean, some of that's just the cost of kind of what government public comment periods are. You know, not everybody is going to play a role in that. So, but we we definitely took took that into consideration and why this is so important. So yes, we talked to private industry, but we also spoke to uh, civil society orgs across the board, and we heard from academics who are both working with industry or, you know, investigating certain impacts to different groups. And we wanted to hear, you know, what the best practices were. We also, you know, continuously track literature, you know, and article reviews and, and hear what's going on with the latest and greatest is. But that's why this is important. AI and risks and impacts requires a broad set of voices. It, it required it in this process. And we hardwired participatory approaches, multi-stakeholder engagement, interdisciplinarity into the framework. So it's pretty meta there. <laughs> um, so, and, and we also included some of that stuff into the playbook. Well, it is quite evident in the final work how much deep thought went into it. Uh, and it's interesting to know that it was a product of so many voices and perspectives woven in to one framework. It sounds like there were hundreds of engagements inside, outside, all around government and across the globe. And you mentioned that there were changes over time. It's been 18 months and there's been a few drafts that have been publicly released. So before we dive into what is happening inside the current draft of the risk management framework, can you tell us a little bit more about what is not in it? For instance, what were some of the changes in the approach or the content over the last 18 months? And what are some of the areas that were outside the scope that you did not take into this draft that you would have liked to address or may in the future or that you'd like others to take and run with? Yeah, I mean, a lot changed over the 18 months, but I think most significant or the first thing that I, I can think of um, is that we we decided to to do the playbook. Um, and some of that was because, you know, we, we heard from a lot of people about, you know, we had these outcomes essentially, which is in the AI RMF core, the functions, the categories and the subcategories. And people would say, well, how, how are we supposed to meet these things? Or we think we know how to meet these things. If we did it this way and we were like, yeah, that's maybe there's other ways that you can go about that. If we put all of that information in the, in the framework, first of all, it would have been way too long. Um, and secondly, it would not be evergreen. And we didn't include examples. You know, we didn't really include particular use cases or case studies. And so some of that got put in the playbook um, so that we could do a deep dive into the hows. How do I actually implement these things? Uh, we thought they, the community told us they, they thought that was necessary. So we went ahead and, and built that. So the how to do this, along with other types of, you know, the what's, you know, there are there are some things that just aren't, you know, maybe don't belong because it's, it's not going to pass time. And I think use cases and uses profiles those were things that we specifically didn't include because we had this task for the AI framework had to be general. It had to be for general use. It had to be use case agnostic. And so we'd hear from people like, oh, I, what if you did an example here? And we we really couldn't do that. Not now the place for that is the profiles. Um, so there's a lot of things that maybe we didn't include, but we're, people are still going to eventually get. Um, it's just not in the main framework. Yeah, enough. If I can add to that, exactly as Riva said, this is a fast-pacing field of technology and science. And uh, we want to make sure that we have a text that's high-level, general, use case and sector agnostic that's good for at least three years. So any anything about specificity of this particular methods for 
improving their privacy or measuring security or any of these things. We pushed it to documents such as Playbook or the upcoming AI RMF profiles, where we already committed to do uh, more regular updates. The crosswalks to other standards and other uh, uh, strategic document also became a separate document exactly because we want to, as Riva said, keep it more evergreen. And as they keeps changing, so we can update them more quickly and keep the text of the AIRMF as stable as possible, given the rapid changes in the field. Yes, as you both say, this is such a rapid changing field. And you're not the only government body to be tackling these important issues that have surfaced around AI technology. At the launch of your event last week, Dr. Alondra Nelson noted that the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy collaborated on this project because the U.S. is taking a principled and sophisticated approach to AI that advances American values and meets the complex challenges to this technology. She noted NIST, DOC, and OSTP have marched together towards a shared unified vision for technology. And NIST was at the table whilst OSTP developed Blueprint for AI, a Bill of Rights, to help set out practices used to address one critical category of risks, and that's threats posed by AI and automated systems to the rights of the American public. And she celebrated the complementary frameworks, including the blueprint for the AI Bill of Rights, and that the RMF acknowledges that when it comes to AI and ML, we can never consider the technology outside its impact on human beings. So lots of collaborative work there. And I wondered how, if you could actually unpick that, how does the NIST RMF fold into similar efforts such as the blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights, as well as those other efforts that are going on across the US government? Thank you, Kay, for that important question. Uh, yes, so a lot of efforts going on across US government, but also globally. And I, I know that many of your uh, listeners are also following the efforts in EU around development of the EU AI Act. And the community involved in all of discussions is not a very large community. So we are all uh, participating in the different discussions. From the second draft of the AI RMF, we included a table that uh, does the crosswalk between several of these documents, uh, between the AI-RMF, uh, how the uh, trustworthy characteristics that has been defined in AI-RMF maps to or aligns with the insights, perspectives, goals, uh, and principles in other documents, such as the EU AI Act, Executive Order 13960, promoting trustworthy AI in the use of government. And after the blueprint uh, was uh, developed, also added a column for the principles uh, mentioned in the uh, blueprint of the AI Bill of Rights, also the OECD AI recommendations. We believe that's really important to show that these documents are uh, semantically aligned. And while it sounds like that there are many different strategies and documents and principles, uh, there are uh, similarities across them. And I think they are all grounded in the similarity that all of them wants to make uh, AI technologies or maybe tech in general more fair, more equitable, more accessible for everybody. 
So AI or MF, as we talked about, aims to help designers, developers, deployers, users, and evaluators of AI systems to better manage AI risks, which could affect individuals, organizations, or society. So one of the things that in our early conversations with the community we learned is that the AI risk management is not just an enterprise risk management. And as Ikea, you mentioned, uh, the impact on how individuals are being affected should be part of the discussions of the AI RMF. And as I said, it is a sector and use case agnostic framework. Uh, the blueprint for AI Bill of Rights focuses, again, as you mentioned, specifically on one category of AI risks, the potential for meaningful impact on individuals and communities' rights, opportunities, um, or access to uh, critical resources and services. So in that case, AI RMF is a much broader in scope and is intended uh, use and users and elements of the AI RMF trustworthy characteristics, which are valid and reliable, privacy enhanced, secure, resilient, interpretable, explainable, safe and uh, bias managed. They also address aspects of uh, civil and human rights. So uh, there is no inherent contradictions between these two documents or between uh, other work that we did with the OECD AI recommendations, executive order that I mentioned, or the principles of the EOAI Act. All of them are trying to maximize the benefits and minimize uh, the risk of the AI systems. And as I said, I think it's really good that a lot of us are involved in all of these different discussions, and that is sort of a, a trying to bring more alignment because getting to trustworthy and responsible AI is going to take all of us, all of us bringing our perspectives together and uh, following the same goal. Well, I think that perspective really illuminates why you have such an impactful document and set of documents for us to work with, knowing that the goal is to get to trustworthy AI and all the elements and some of the steps you just walked us through to help build that trust and that buy-in. So thank you for helping us understand the context, how it works with other government frameworks and documents across the globe. And now we wanna ask you specifically about this framework itself. How would a company engage with it? Who is the audience? And, and how would you intend for them to use this resource? Can you also share with us some of the existing resources that are already out there as well as what we can expect to see so that someone knows what they're expected to do to make good use of this product that you've released? Thank you for that question. That's also another really good question. The goal of AI RMF is broad and its audience is broad. So uh, we do have a section that talks about audience. And you know, one of the goals of the AI RMF, one of the, the goals of our work is to bring the whole community on a shared understanding of many different terms and definitions that are going around. So I'll talk about the trustworthy characteristics and we try to uh, map it to the standard definitions of this type of characteristics. Uh, we try to do the same thing with the different, uh, we call them AI actors that are going to be involved in the various stages of the AI life cycle. So there is a appendix in the AI RMF that explains the different AI actors, their role and responsibility in the different stages of the AI uh, life cycle. And we also emphasize in the document that the risk management, risk understanding, measuring and managing is a shared responsibility that the designers, developers, deployers, and users depend on where they are on the life cycle 
have different roles and responsibilities. While the document may uh, look and sound, and some people may say that, oh, this approach is more technical than, for example, the EU approach, the audience of the AI RMF is certainly broader than just the tech technology developer and the people that are building the AI systems. The governance uh, section, the function, talks a lot about uh, the roles and responsibility for setting up policies and procedures for governing and transparency and documenting, and that is certainly responsibilities beyond the tech developers. The same thing for the deployers, right? If they are going to grab a technology and deploy it, what sorts of questions they need to ask, what sorts of actions they need to take to, to ensure a uh, trustworthy deployment and responsible use of the AI systems. Having said that, it may sound like that, oh, wow, it's a lot. If I am just a tech developer, if I'm just responsible for procurement, where do I start? Where do I need to go? Do I need to go through all of these um, subcategories for the function? It's hundreds of subcategories. It's It may sound too much. Our, our first attempt to, uh, to try to put something that's as complete and comprehensive out and, and uh, in the following work, we look forward uh, to working with the community on developing more of a, uh, I don't want to say checklist because that's not what we want to do, but uh, the right set of guidance for depend on depending on your role in the life cycle. Uh, what are the actions, what are the uh, recommendations and guidance in the AI RMF that's most uh, related to you? So if I'm just a developer, what do I need to worry about? What are the things I ought to do? If I'm just a deployer, uh, what uh, section and portions of the AI RMF need to pay attention to? Uh, but another way also that we like to develop more guidance is that regardless of my role in the life cycle, if I want to know everything about bias, or if I know everything about the safety, what are the related subcategories? So these are the additional work that we are looking forward to work with the community to help with the operationalizing and implementation of the AI RMF. Yeah, and I would just add, so we talk a lot about how we approach AI as the socio-technical system that it is. But one of the challenges for us, going back to that earlier question about what changed, you know, we we changed the audience section like so many different times and ways. And that's because current existing life cycles are so technology centric and about the pipeline. And that for us, it wasn't, it, it was insufficient. And so we realized that what we could do is, you know, kind of still present that life cycle, but then uh, retrofit the actors on it and say like there are humans all along the life cycle and not all of those humans are, are technology people. We have a place for impact assessors, um, socio-technical experts, uh, human factors experts, you know, uh, uh, procurement users, domain experts. We have a space for everyone there. Now that is mostly, you know, it's kind of visualized in the document, but a lot of the descriptions are in the appendix. But also because we're NIST, we also, of course, uh, get to measurement and evaluation, which is, you know, we we did specifically call out where in every stage of the life cycle, test, evaluation, validation, and verification should be happening. And that in and of itself, while it is a, a measurement and often technology-centric activity, we have space for all sorts of consultations from everywhere. So it is it is definitely bigger than just resource for the developer team. So just following up with that, you know, who's the framework intended for? Well, you've helped us with that enormously. And you've helped us with a lot of those core elements. 
But how exactly would a company engage with the tool and apply it in their AI systems? And I think a really important point that I get asked a lot is, well, what's the value to my company? of engaging in any responsible AI process. And, you know, we've not been able to define that yet. And it's some work we think we're doing at the forum because we think it's so important. And how and why should the companies use the use the tool? I'm going to talk about the why first. Um, I think if you're hearing a lot about all the negative impacts of AI, this can help, although this is not a, a compliance tool. Um, this is really more about approaching AI from a different perspective, um, that it is not just its technology piece, it is not just the pipeline, but paraphrasing Dr. Nelson's comments during the launch event, you know, the technology is made by people, systems impact people, the data is about people. And if we don't find ways to change the culture and change governance aspects, then that's really what people are getting. It's, it's the benefit of a new culture that's focused on risk and thinking about impacts broader than accuracy metrics, uh, broader than reliability metrics, or whether your systems are explainable to the developers on the team. So what about interpretability? That bias is bigger than data representation. So I think it's really um, about expanding the aperture a little bit. It's definitely governance heavy. I think that's the why uh, that they benefit from those things. They may not necessarily think they want it or, or need it right now, but they will benefit from that. <laughs> No question. I think, can I double underscore that point? I think for so many reasons, this gives companies, organizations a competitive advantage because if they do it properly, they will achieve the goal that you've set out to help them with. And that's creating a system that's trustworthy. And what's more important than having trust within your company, your organization, and with your consumers, the broader public. So certainly a really important tool, as well as the broader purpose of creating safer systems in our public, making sure that we are not harmed by our technology, but rather that it serves and protects us. So no question, there is an absolute value add and that anyone following this work will really benefit tremendously. I'm also so curious about the intended flexibility of this framework. I mean, you mentioned all the different users who will uh, benefit from following the framework. It was meant to be used in companies of all sizes, in all sectors, by frankly, anyone using technology. That's quite a broad scope in how it will be used and, and who might need to understand it. So when you're developing a framework at that scale, what are some of the challenges that you were able to overcome to make it adaptable? And are there any lessons we should learn from how you looked at past tools that NIST or others created First of all, understanding how they would play together with the privacy and cyber frameworks in particular, or other lessons learned in understanding what does or does not make uh, such a broad document flexible. Yeah, flexibility is the key, right? So if uh, we try to address a bigger gap on how to make these technologies trustworthy, and uh, in doing so, we try to uh, first bring some sort of a foundation on what trust means, what constitutes trust, what are the trustworthy characteristics, and, and try to build that foundation. And again, regardless of your sector or your role in the AI lifecycle, that horizontal foundation is needed. Now, as we build vertical for the different sectors, how 
safety or privacy or security is going to manifest itself and it's going to be important for the different applications and different vertical use cases, it's going to differ a little bit. The trade-off among all of these characteristics are also going to be very much dependent on the context and the use case. You ask about how to build that flexibility. We try to make sure that we build a solid foundation that allows for the growth of these verticals. Keep the, the vertical discussion into companion documents such as the playbook or the profile or other documents that can get more specific, basically try to have a narrower scope and address that narrower scope with more tailored guidance and tailored recommendations to that particular context. And also that goes to lessons learned from other things. First and foremost, NIST and particularly ITL and our teams, each of our teams are pretty small. And the good thing about pretty small teams is it can be also nimble and coordinate with others quite quickly because we ran to hallways or, or Zoom meetings and all this together. So we definitely try to do the lessons learned and uh, do the alignment. And uh, you would see in the document that we emphasized on we want this document to be responsive to the risks unique to AI, that the risks to AI systems, some of them are similar to the risks to any information technology systems. So if there are other documents for specific address, in this case, for example, privacy or security in more general as AI system being information technology systems, we just leverage those and we are not going to redo the whole thing. But in, for example, security and privacy or safety, we try to address the risks that AI systems are unique to AI system or arising because of the AI system. So for example, poisoning attacks or infiltration and learning from the training data by attacking the system. So these are unique to the AI system and we try to address that. Another thing that we also learned uh, and that was important is to set up criteria for measuring the effectiveness of the AI RMF. So we hadn't done that, setting up that criteria very well, but we have a section in the uh, uh, in our framework, and that's another uh, list on our uh, roadmap and the things that we want to do with the community because the efforts, money, resources spent on implementation of the, this framework is the money, effort, and resources that's taken away from some other activities. So it's going to be important to show by implementing this how the organization was helped in, in doing, you know, in responding to risk or what, what they need to do. Uh, so that was another thing really important to us and uh, brought up to us, uh, to our attention uh, from the community that's important to set up criteria for measuring the effectiveness of the AIRMF and something that we are committed to do and committed to uh, measure the AIRMF. So just summarizing everything that I said, the flexibility and the broad scope was building a, a good horizontal foundations that allows for the vertical to be built, um, the, the, organize the whole structure in a way that the verticals and more specific parts can be separate documents uh, that can be updated and adapted uh, quicker do the alignment with the broader global effort uh, on policy, on standards, on measurement, and uh, focus it just on AI. And be mindful to be able to measure the effectiveness of the framework to be able to have actionable feedback on what are the things that needs to be changed or improved for the next versions of the AI or MF.
I'm sure that both Miriam and I are awed by the amount of work that's gone into this by you and your teams and the amount of effort you put into it and the collaboration. And I'm sure that that's very true of everybody listening to this podcast as well. You've changed direction, you've got flexibility, you've just included all the things that, that we have all been thinking about for a long time and made them apparent. So I wondered what over the last 18 months deep dive time that you've put into AI governance, you've learnt. And also just really a personal question, you know, how did you get so passionate about this responsible AI in the first place? My background's in uh, linguistics and, and really experimental phonetics. I worked in a, a really obscure field um, of, of forensic science, actually known as uh, forensic speaker recognition. As a phonetician, that means just basically I, I've been immersed in spoken language, not text-based language. So I missed all the all the fun that <laughs> my text-based NLP colleagues have engaged with. But uh, so for 15 years, I was a forensic examiner in, in federal law enforcement. And as a domain expert, I tried to bring linguistically informed practices to, to my field. And so that is really a story about context and being contextually aware. I had to do that because that field leans heavily on biometric systems, which is actually Elham's background and, and how I, I kind of came to NIST. Um, so it was really the first time in my experience as a, as a social scientist where I was kind of the only social scientist in the room filled with computational experts. And that's, by the way, been the story of my life ever since. So I really found out uh, during that time period that there are some significant pitfalls in how tech is developed and used and perceived by practitioners. And I've tried uh, over the years as I've gotten more confident <laughs> and brave in those meetings is to, to try and you know speak up for people who, who have that context. Because what happens is there's not really, we, we kind of lack this common vernacular across these, across these areas. So data-driven approaches are incredibly powerful, but they do elide uh, these kind of significant contextual factors. People, end users, practitioners over rely on or over trust tech and thinking its capabilities go beyond what's possible. I am not trying to suggest that tech should, shouldn't be used or isn't important, but any system is going to produce output, right? And so if you're a practitioner and you're on the receiving end of that output, there's there's a lot of opportunity for bias, for over trust in a way. And this becomes particularly problematic if the end user does not have specific underlying knowledge of the domain. So you get some output. Obviously, the system knows better. And this is really important, obviously, in forensic science. The impacts and the harms are, are pretty high stakes. So I became really interested in the implicit assumptions and norms at the organizational level and how they drive almost everything. And relatively early on, I became pretty fascinated by these kinds of norms, their implicit nature, the ways practitioners of any type kind of default to those norms no matter what. So there's a lot of opportunity, like I said, for human cognitive bias uh, and for systemic bias to kind of just get inserted into our processes. And because they are so implicit, we, we can't track it. So it turns out that those topics should ring familiar to anybody working in trustworthy, responsible AI or, or people who write about that, these factors. So either our, our work on AI bias or in the AI, AI RMF, it's just kind of incredibly impactful. So, um, you know, as we did this deep dive into all things AI governance, 
I would say, you know, what we found are things that, that I that I <laughs> harken back to my days as a practitioner, that culture really matters. Um, organizational buy-in really matters. But without making some of these norms that just become the way we all do business, without making them explicit, and without um, strong organizational governance and, and buy-in, those changes cannot really take hold well or take hold permanently. We learned a lot from highly regulated industries who, who they wanted to talk to us a lot. We are obviously not a regulatory agency. This is not regulation. We were not trying to create regulation, but we did learn things from them that we could adapt that became uh, less onerous, best practices that we could, you know, in a voluntary way, give organizations a way that, you know, kind of get to the germ of what the best practice there was and put that both in the framework and the playbook. And a lot of that, uh, no shocker, is um, is interdisciplinarity and collaboration. I wish I had all of the insight and perspective that Riva mentioned. I have to confess that for a long time, I was one of the engineers that would build models because I could. I had the knowledge and I built that. And then uh, over the time and having children and social media and technology taking over and reading and observing, I realized that really these technologies is not just about data algorithm computations. It's also about the context, about the people that it's going to be affected on. And that's where we are. So I, I learned a lot about all these things from good colleagues like Riva and Kay and Miriam, uh, all the works that you guys have done. Thank you. And it's really interesting, I think, for all of us to hear from two of the women leading in Responsible AI, what your journey was, what you've learned along the way. I think it explains to people some of the work you've come up with and why it is so multidisciplinary, inclusive. Uh, in addition to the RMF and the playbook that we've talked about here today, you know, the SP1270 proposal for identifying and managing bias in AI is masterful. I think it should be required reading for anyone using technology, which is I don't know, probably 98% of the world at this point. And understanding Riva's orientation helps us understand why that document is so impactful. Just like the AI RMF that we are talking about today, I think Kay and I just have to commend you both for completing such a significant and historic accomplishment. I know that you do not have a large staff. I know that you all have been working pretty much for 18 months straight on a sprint to get the world this document that we really do need and will benefit from. And I wish we could continue the conversation, but I know we have to let you both get back to work. And so I will ask you both the question that we ask all of our guests before we let them escape. And that is, given all that you do, all that you've seen, all that you know, if you had a magic wand to help us achieve responsible AI, what would you wish for? Yeah, I mean, I think some way to get all of the distinct actors along the life cycle and, and, and elsewhere to understand each other better and be able to collaborate more easily. I think there's just so much that we can learn from each other. That's kind of my wish for how the map function can be picked up and adopted. Um, but that's, of course, going to look different in every place. Yeah, anything to enhance communication across contexts. And I think mine is also similar to what Riva said. And uh, going back to our uh, last conversations, Recognizing that AI technologies are not just about data, algorithm, and computations. It's about how it's being used, how it affects people in real world, and get everybody talking about them. 
Well, I hope everyone's talking about this AI RMF. It's really masterful and thoughtful. We are so grateful to you. And we know from what you've just said, there is more to come. So we look forward to hopefully having you back on the show and supporting you in this important endeavor. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Well, that was phenomenal, wasn't it? I mean, so many things for us to think about and take away and rereading the document and making sure that everybody in our groups that we work with really understand the depth and breadth of this piece of work. So what were the key takeaways for you? I think that it was really helpful to land on an important piece that Elham said, which is deeply technical and narrow in its perspective and huge in its impact. And that is, if you can't measure it, you can't improve it. And so she's helping us by building this framework where she narrows in so specifically on each detail at each stage of the AI lifecycle so that writ large, it can be improved so that it can be saved so that can be trustworthy. And even understanding what trustworthy means and to whom you're speaking, what they're going to value. You know, the, the conversation really focuses on the values at stake here, uh, how critical they are to make sure that AI is supporting and not impeding them, but also how challenging it is to assess what values need to be taken into account so that your AI can be trusted. I think it was so interesting to hear about the different iterations, about that this is a living document that changed over time and for which they see many different uses and side projects going forward. It's very clear they call this 1.0 because there's much more to come. And it was really interesting to think about, even though they plan to keep it updated, the challenge that goes into creating this framework that's evergreen that in this emerging field of AI where it almost feels like every month we're in a new landscape of what AI is able to do and, and how it is a pivotal part of our lives and our work and in quality of life. And yet you have to create the static document that will be meaningful in a month, in a year, in years to come. And so understanding the process they took to, to make sure they got that right was really instructive and inspiring, frankly. How about for you? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that, you know, some of the things that they said echo many of the things that you and I have been talking about for a long time. And it's really good to see that, that these incorporated in such important documents that it's about the culture of a company that's creating AI. It's about the buy-in around the total organization. And, you know, you mentioned our episode about Davos. I was on a panel talking about how you get responsible AI to the C-suite, to well, to the CEO, and why that's so important. And so, you know, again, hearing that reflected here, I thought it was just lovely the way that Reva said her wish was to get people to understand one another better and try and speak the same language, because it is such a miss. And, and if we don't get there, we just have these constant conversations that are not heard by the other person. So those, I think, were two really important pieces that I heard. 
like you, you know, collaboration, the need for collaboration and interdisciplinary work. And, you know, again, the comments about I used to build models because I could. And that's not the right approach from Elham. I mean, that's just would that we heard that from all of the technologists who are building models. Absolutely. And I think we can learn so much about what helped them open their eyes, what helped them translate their mission from the actual job assignment, understanding the broader impact of their work. It's very easy for us to imagine or expect others to understand how we're going to use a tool or what we're expecting them to do. But knowing that without talking to all the people, without having lived in, in all the other shoes and values out there, so interesting from Riva, from Elham, from so many of our guests as to how they made that switch to understanding the broader scope of their work and understanding and feeling the responsibility to make sure that they do that right. Yeah. And I am very excited that there's more to come. I'm very excited that these women who are so deeply thoughtful and committed to making sure that unheard voices are heard, that underrepresented populations are represented, and that our AI is safe and effective and helping ensure that we can have a more efficient, healthier society, knowing that they have this work underway, knowing that we have so much directed at this small agency that will be coming is inspiring, encouraging, and it was really helpful to understand what they are putting into it, what we can all learn about the process that they undertake. No one anymore has the excuse to say, I have bureaucracy to deal with because they are within the government. No one can say I am low on resources because you know we just saw maybe a third of their team. So they took no excuses. They understood the full impact they can and should have. And I think that teaches so much about the right way to go about AI frameworks with transparency, multi-stakeholder approaches, and the end goal of just getting as many voices into it so that it can be as safe and as effective as possible. And when we're talking about safe and effective and, and many voices, you know, it's it's also lovely to see that this is an initiative led by two women who have gone out of their way to make sure that everybody's voice is heard. And when we contrast that perhaps with the teams that are building artificial intelligence, immediately you see that when you bring in that richness of diversity, you begin to make a huge difference in this thing that we call responsible AI. Couldn't agree more. Uh, this was certainly an inspiring episode and I'm so glad I got to share that with you. Likewise. Take care, Miriam. Subscribe to or download our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. To learn more or get involved, visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want more unique content, please head over to Radio Davos from the World Economic Forum. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible.